2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's continue worshiping and hearing from the Lord and staying connected to Him in this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, I want you to pull up a mental image, if you would, and hold this in your mind's eye throughout our time in God's Word. It's the mental image of a baton, uh, that which runners pass on to each other. Just kind of picture one in your mind and hold it there. You got it? And you've got 2 Corinthians 7, right? I want us to jog through four or five verses this morning and take a few laps around this textual track while we're holding the image of a baton in our mind. Lap one will be verses five, six, and seven of 2 Corinthians 7. Lap two will be verses eight and nine. And we're going to see another irresistible interruption, a moment in which God interrupted Paul with his comfort. And we're going to learn some beautiful and I think extremely practical truths about God's comfort this morning. What do you say we start lap one? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, follow with me as I read. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Paul here is speaking of himself, Silas, and Timothy. He said, this team of ours, we had no rest physically, but we were afflicted at every turn. Think about the intensity of that phrase. Afflicted at every turn. He describes it further by saying, there was fighting without and there was fear within. And then these famous words we've been seeing all summer, saying with me, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. In this lap one, let me just kind of explain to you what's going on here in these verses. It's really a continuation of a thought that Paul started back in chapter 2, verse 12. In fact, when you flip back one page, and you'll notice an interesting um, beginning here. It's chapter 2, verse 12. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now from there, go right to 7, 5. For when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Do you see the continuation? He's speaking here of, of how his spirit had no rest in Troas. So he received a vision to go to Macedonia. He goes there and now their bodies had no rest. And what you find between 7, oh, about 14, and, excuse me, 2.14 to about 7.4 is a pretty long interlude. Paul is known for these things. He interrupts himself often. He has long sentences with many uh, tangents and, and detours. This is one of those. And what Paul is doing here, he's saying, when we were in the, the Troas area, we had some open doors, but, but our spirits weren't rest. In other words, we could sense God leading us to a different place. You'll read Acts 16. You'll find this to be true. It was that night in Troas that he received a call, a vision from the man in Macedonia. And so they went. They get to Macedonia. And I believe what's referenced here is the ministry in the city of Philippi. They received much physical opposition. In fact, so much so that they were jailed. Do you recall that? The Philippian jailer story? 
the earthquake occurs, all the prisoners leave, and in the midst of all that chaos, this jailer comes to Christ, he and his household. But what ensued was actually they were so embarrassed, the, the officials were, that they asked Paul if they could leave privately. Could, you, could we just kind of ask you to leave without anybody knowing what happened so we're not embarrassed? And Paul did not allow that. He felt so humiliated by that move that he asked for an escort out of the town. He didn't want to be one of these kind of guys just leaving privately like, hey, you know, you mistreated us and nobody will ever know about it. That's what he's referring to when he says, our bodies had no rest, we were afflicted, we were downcast. The word there means humiliated. Paul's referencing the struggles he had in Acts 16 in this town called Philippi, in which I believe he's referencing a, a, a large amount of humili humiliation. So when he was in this area, Prior to getting there, he couldn't find Titus, but when he finally gets there, apparently Titus shows up, and he says in verse 6, this is really what comforted him, that in this middle of humiliating circumstances, lots of struggles on the outside, being jailed, just difficulty after difficulty, Titus shows up, even though he couldn't find him earlier, and he says it was a comfort to him. And so this is interesting, isn't it? That God uses a person to bring comfort to Paul. Now, a little more about this word comfort. It, it, it's formed from two words. The first word means to come alongside someone, and the other part of the word comes from the word to call. So we often say it's to call someone alongside of you. It's very close, comes from the same root as the word encouragement. I like to say it like this. Comfort means you have a voice and a friend. Like someone close to you just speaking good news to you. That's what comfort is. And some of you are nodding now. You're, you're saying that's exactly how comfort looks in my life. It's a voice and a friend. Paul here is saying that very same thing. He says, you know, when Titus showed up, man, it was a voice and it was a friend. And it was, it was uh, encouraging to me. So that's what the word means definitionally. Description, look what he says. Here's how Paul experienced that comfort. He says, first of all, it was by the coming of Titus. Verse 6, do you see that in your text? But notice something I think is quite intriguing. As verse 7 unfolds, he says it's not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So when Paul and Titus intersect, he says, oh my, it's so good to see you. You're a comfort to me. But then he realizes that Titus has been comforted by something. And so the fact that Titus was refreshed and comforted actually comforted Paul. Paul, in other words, was encouraged because Titus had been encouraged. Now, the natural question is, why was Titus encouraged? Why was Titus comforted? Let's read verses 8 and 9. Let's take lap 2 now. As we're holding this baton, we're in this textual track. Here's lap 2. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Okay, what's going on there? What's, what's Paul explaining that helps us understand why Titus was comforted, which actually ended up being a comfort to Paul. Well, here's what we can know for sure. There's many details we don't know, but here's what we can know for sure. There seems to be, within the Corinthian church, there was an issue, a sin, 
And Paul used his apostolic authority to deal with it. I think he actually used his authority to deal with it in this letter that he wrote to them and actually called the Corinthian church to discipline the sinful person. Now, we don't know exactly if that letter is 1 Corinthians or if it's what scholars refer to as a missing letter. We don't know for sure. There seems to be indication of another letter, perhaps the Corinthian church got, that may have been more stinging than the first one. Maybe it references this sin. It may reference 1 Corinthians. It may be the situation referenced in 1 Corinthians 5 with the sexual sin there in the church, also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2. Lots of verses there. If you need them, just go back and listen to the podcast. You can catch those. Either way, without trying to define all those details, know this. Paul is referencing a letter he wrote to deal with a sinful situation. At, and that the initial reading of the letter, the Corinthian church was like, hey, we don't like Paul. We're not listening to you. And they were resistant. They were rebellious. They were upset with the deliverer of the, of the news. <laughs> you know, he's just the paper boy, right? Why are you mad at him? <laughs> but they didn't like Paul. And so there was a strain in their relationship. There was this distance in their fellowship. But at some point, and Titus must have been there when this occurred, they rethought, they, they, they came around. God's spirit nudged them into repentance. They realized, wow, this isn't right. And if, you're, if this is referencing the sexual sin of 1 Corinthians 5, that's readdressed in 2 Corinthians 2, it shows that the sinful person repented. The church then forgave him, and there was actually a, a restoration occurring, and this was such good news to Titus. He comes and reports to Paul, and Paul hears, oh, the Corinthians aren't, aren't upset anymore. The, the hard thing I had to do actually nudged them towards repentance, and now there's restoration in the church. This is great news. This is what Titus was comforted by, and as he was comforted, it comforted Paul. So does that make sense? That's what verses 8 and 9 are talking about. And I love what's happening here. I love how Paul is secure enough. We'll say more in a minute about this, but I love how Paul is secure enough to rejoice with another person's rejoicing, how it comforts him, I love the fact that the Corinthian church is willing to say, man, Paul, we missed it the first time around. You were right. We're wrong. We repent. We want to get on the, on the right side of this. We want to be with God's word. There's repentance and restoration. There's forgiveness. In the end, there's rejoicing. All of this combined brought comfort to Paul. It's what God used to encourage him in a very humiliating time. So what's the point then, the thrust of this passage? Well, let's look at it historically in a single sentence. Let's try to summarize this as it happened then. And we would say this, that God interrupted Paul's inner discouragement, which was emotional. He says fighting with, within, fighting without. So God interrupted Paul's inner discouragement and outer opposition with his comfort, which was good news from Titus about God's work among the Corinthian church. That's the historical understanding of this text. That comfort was good news from a friend about God's work in the church. Now, why don't we present tense this truth? We've read these four or five verses. We've understood them in their context. It can't mean more now than it meant then. It can't mean something different to us than it meant to them, right? That's how you study the Bible. So we know what it meant then. What does it mean to us now? What's the same truth in the present tense? It simply means this, that God interrupts our inner discouragement and outer opposition with his comfort when we receive good news from a person about God's work among his people. This is the point now, that God would have you 
as part of his church, be a conduit of comfort. How? By sharing good news about his work among his people. I'm often reminded this is the very thing many people are, are longing to hear. They're longing to hear the voice of a friend bringing good news of God's work among his people. Why? Because that's how God delivers comfort. That's one of the ways he brings comfort to his people. When they're struggling on the outside and they're struggling on the inside, the voice of a friend sharing how God is working among his people is often the very comfort they need. Now, I ask you to keep in mind this um, mental image of a baton. Remember that? Like hold that in your, in your head. Because I think in this text especially, a baton represents well what comfort is in the church. Comfort is like the baton we pass to one another. It's the good news of how God is working. And so when I hear of God's work, when I experience it, when I see it in, in someone's life, then I go to Bob and say, Bob, guess what? And watch this. Here's the baton of comfort. And I relay it. He receives it. He's comforted not just by the voice of a friend in his life, but also by the comfort he sees that I got. So as I share in the good news and give it to him, he shares in the good news, and we both receive encouragement, comfort. Comfort is a baton that we pass among the church. It's good news of God's work. So are you receiving the baton, and are you relaying the baton? Are you aware and observant of good news in the church? of God's work among people, and are you then sharing that? This is how we are conduits of comfort. Now, let me just share this with you. I want to be careful how I say this. There's not a single part of Scripture that's not practical, all right? I want to make, give that qualifier first. As a pastor, as a theologian, there's not a single verse that I would say, well, that's not very practical. All of it is to help us live righteously, for rebuke, correction, instruction. I, mean, I, I agree with every bit of that. I do want to say that there are places where we see its practicality more quickly. Can we say that? I'm looking for a good nod from Ed over here, kind of a mentor to me and uh, a man with many more years in preaching. I'm like, I appreciate that, Ed. Thank you. And in this text, I find that the practicality of this quickly surfaces because I, I think we can get our hands around comfort in ways that perhaps... Sometimes it seems elusive, like what is comfort? How does it work? Comfort is simply the voice of a friend bringing good news to another person about God's work in the church. And I can get my hands around that. that. That's tangible. It can be felt and seen and heard. And don't you love it when God's word is quickly practical? That's what this is this morning. That's why we are called to be conduits of comfort and the way we do that is by being bearers of good news of God's work among his people and we share that we may not always know who needs the comfort but as we are quick to share the news of God's work among his church God will use that as a means of comfort of encouragement for his people now in the second half of my message, I want to itemize everything I just told you into four simple statements. That's, that's the gist of the narrative. 
we interrupted this, this kind of book with this simple story about Titus and Paul and Macedonia. We gave you the, the overall gist of the narrative, what it meant then, what it means now. Can I just kind of itemize all those thoughts with four simple statements? Because I think you can maybe make these, use these as handles. Maybe you can take all that you've heard and put these handles on them and carry it home a little better. Put it in your pocket. Maybe it'll serve as a, as a simple way to kind of remember things. So here's four statements about comfort that I want you to see. That kind of summarize things. And we'll, we'll expand on these with even more scriptures to bring greater support for these observations. Okay, first of all, the first thing we know about comfort is this, that comfort is from God. And I don't overlook the obvious here. God is the one who's comforting. It's his comfort. And when we say this, we're, we're saying that origin matters. Because in the end of the day, the glory for the comfort the church receives doesn't stay horizontal. It doesn't go this way. We're conduits, but we're not the source. We're not the cause. God is the father of all comfort. This is stated so clearly in 2 Corinthians, this same book, chapter 1, verse 3, in which Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and say with me, church, the God of all comfort. And if you'll read further in the text, you'll find that Paul says he's the God of all comfort in their life because he's the God of every affliction in their life. And so all of their comfort they're receiving will help in the Corinthians' uh, affliction in their life. So, so understand, God is the God of all comfort. All comfort is from God. Origin matters. He's the one who gets the credit. Secondly, we know this. Comfort comes through people. Let's stay in 2 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 4 now. When Paul says, God is the God of all comfort, he says, he comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So, so people in the church are actually vessels. We're conduits. We're means by which God's comfort gets to other people. So that doesn't mean that God can't comfort without a person, but it means that God starts his comfort often in a person by doing a work. They experience it, and then they share it, and then God uses that very comfort that they experienced to help comfort someone else. There's a lot of comforts going on right now. Are you with me? But that's how this works. God begins it in someone's life. He encourages them as they watch his work in the church. It comforts them, then they share it, and then the person who receives the baton of this comfort, they not only receive the comfort of the news, they receive the comfort of the person, and they receive the comfort of watching the person be comforted. That's how the text shows it. So we've got to realize that comfort comes through people. We're conduits, not the cause. I like how 2 Corinthians 13, 11 talks about this. I've been really mulling these verses over for a few days here. I love these verses because they, they show that in a time of chaos and division in the Corinthian church, when there was, you know, disagreement, just, just it seemed like, you know, always on the surface, Paul says this. He says, finally, brothers. Like, he's, he's, he's kind of laying out this in trajectory for this church. He says, aim for restoration, rejoice, and then comfort one another. He did not say there, get comforted, did he? Like it's something that happens outside of community. He says comfort, say it with me, one another. There's a communal aspect to comfort. So let me see if I can intersect this text, 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 7, as well as chapter 1, 
with the current situation we're living in, the pandemic, with some pastoral exhortations for you. It is right, and it is scriptural, for us to make short-term adjustments to our methods when there's necessity and cause for that. Our governing authorities have asked us to be cautious and careful. We want to respond with the right attitude. We want to love our neighbor. Those are all scriptural principles. So it is right to make short-term adjustments in our methods. It's scriptural, but it's sinful to make long-term concessions about God's mandates. And one of God's mandates is community. And my sense, and I don't want to say my fears, I'm not afraid, but my sense and perhaps my um, caution is that this opportunity is being seized by the world's system to try to make community a, a bargaining chip. And let it be said here, for your pastor and elders and this church, we'll never concede the mandate of community because the world is scared of a sickness. Will we make short-term adjustments? You bet we will. We'll be careful, but we'll also be faithful. All right? Now, don't hear this as a word against social distancing or a word against masks. That's not even what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of longer-term issues. When suddenly, we may be faced with like, well, why does the, why does the churches never meet again? Why don't you just not gather? And you may think that sounds crazy because you've been raised in America where you've had lots of religious liberty. But many places in the world do not have that liberty. And we are foolish to think that we are exempt somehow, perhaps. We must be on guard and vigilant. And I want to make sure you're aware that while it is scriptural to make short-term adjustments in our methods, it is sinful to make long-term concessions regarding God's mandates. Now, I would contend with you that the community described in the Bible is not just a static concept. It is a dynamic experience by which I would say to you it's close community. In fact, just in my normal devotional reading, I ran across three references that really convicted me that community is designed to be close. And I'll just kind of throw these out to you and let them land how they may. Remember, don't be mad at the paper boy, all right? I read twice this week where Paul encouraged the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we can talk all day about what that means culturally, but I guarantee you this, it didn't happen at six feet. Now, I'm, I'm, no, don't laugh, honestly. I'm not trying to mock I'm trying to teach. We were not made to live at an arm's length. Again, it's right and scriptural to make short-term adjustments. Love of neighbor, submission to our governing authorities. I don't want this to be a mocking moment. I'm trying to help us establish a solid floor on which to stand in the face of difficult decisions sometimes. And how do we walk in these difficult times? So when I read greet with a holy kiss, I'm like, man... How did that look in their times when there were outbreaks and persecution? I also read where Paul described the day in which, um, since Christ's resurrection, that we don't have to cover our faces anymore. In other words, we don't have to veil ourselves from, 
from God's glory. God's glory happens within the church as we see him changing us from one degree of glory to another. Now, so he says, we with unveiled faces look upon this. That's not a verse about masks. It's not a verse about social distancing. This is a verse about long-term embedded DNA values of the church. And one of those is that we, we embrace transparency, vulnerability. We embrace closeness and community. And one of the reasons we do that is because that's one of the ways God comforts his people. So if, if you're tempted to let go of the rope of community, in fact, I would contend, if you're tempted to let go of the rope of close community, do not make that mistake. You're conceding a, a deep biblical value that God mandates for his people. Now, it can look different ways, and we can make short-term adjustments. I've said that three times now. Are you hearing me? I want to be one who postures as a partner with our governing authorities as much as we can with those who are uh, immunocompromised, with those who maybe have different opinions. We want to maintain a posture of, of welcoming those. Are, are you with me? That's the, that's the attitude to have, not one of division and argumentativeness, debating on things that, that there's no verse about. Let's instead rally around the the values that God has held out to his church. He says, you got to figure this out. You can't abandon this no matter what the times bring your way. And one of those is that we are to live in close community because it's one of the ways that God brings comfort to his people. So I hope you hear that well. And I want to just say a word to all those who are watching and listening. I so appreciate you who make the time to watch every week. I, I know sometimes, and that I experienced this when we were online only. Man, it was easy to get up and just do something else. Am I the only guy in the room feeling that way? I mean, and I was the guy who had preached the sermon, right? And I was like, I don't want to go watch myself. That's terrible. <laughs> but you just kind of get up, you get something to eat, you might go for a jog, you might start doing something. And it just, without the discipline of, of getting everyone ready and getting in the car and going to a place, it becomes almost like, too easy just to do something else. And I just want to thank you folks who have good reason to still stay separated. And you know what those are. We trust you with that decision. Thank you for not abandoning this time to tune in and to listen and to watch and to do what you can. I was talking to one of our older couples this week, and they, they texted me this question, Todd, when will it be safe to return? Now, I'm not going to tell you how I answered the question because it's not important. Uh, or our conversation. My point is that in the whole texting and email that we had, their heart for community was so evident. And I wrote to them, I said, I love your love for Christ's body. See, see, that's what we're after here. We're not after to pick apart opinions about masks or distancing. We're here to rally around this. Life was not made to be lived at a distance. Isolation is actually very harmful. So we've got to figure out how we can maintain God's mandates while making short-term adjustments out of love of neighbor. And so we've been saying this for months. Let's be careful, but by God's grace, let's be faithful. And this week I've realized one of the reasons we must be faithful to close community is because it's one of the ways in which God delivers the voice of a friend. Comfort. Observation number three, comfort contains good news in a hard situation. 
If in the first statement we're saying origin matters and in the second statement we're saying community matters, here we're saying content matters. It's good news about God's work among his people. It's not just, you know, hey, your team won the playoffs. Or in this case, hey, your team's actually playing this season, right? <laughs> it's not good news about the weather or, hey, it didn't rain, so I finished the fence. Those are all fine things, but there's no comfort in that. The comfort is in God's work among his people. I want to call us as a church to high-caliber conversation. This is not meaning the other conversation doesn't matter, but it isn't the most important piece of conversation. And I've been convicted in the past few days of trying to direct conversation to that which actually can bring comfort. It's God's work among his people. And then being more aware and, and observant of what God is doing and where he's winning victories and where he's growing and bringing folks to repentance and then sharing that with people. Committing to being a person quick to praise and slow to criticize. You know, in the Corinthian church, that seems to have been a problem. They were quick to criticize and slow to praise. Quick to notice man's efforts and accomplishments and, uh, excuse me, quick to notice man's accomplishments and divide based on that and slow to notice God's unifying work among them. And I think we should instead be a people quick to praise and slow to criticize. Now, there are times that you have to confront and bring a critical comment or observation. Can I just suggest two fences that will help you in that? Because I don't want you to live in this world that doesn't exist, like, well, there's never a hard conversation to have. That just doesn't exist. Even the best of friends have to often have hard conversations. So I would say this to you. Do it individually and do it constructively. If you'll follow those two uh, guidelines, if you'll let those two fences kind of hem you in when you have to have a hard conversation, or you could even say, you know, kind of bring a critical note to someone, I think it will help us. Do it individually, one-on-one. -on -one. Don't, don't gang up on someone when they're not around in a group of people to make yourself look better and just kind of go off on them. That's immature. It's not helpful at all. Have the courage to wait and talk to them individually. And then do it constructively. Now, I admit to you, you may actually do that and could be misperceived and misinterpreted. And it could be said of you, man, they just beat me up. And actually, you were constructive and you, were, you did it privately. So don't expect it to work every time. Can I say that to you? You could actually go with clarity, constructive attitude and individually and it still not go well. When you do it this way, though, at least your conscience is clear before the Lord. So let's make a commitment. We're going to be quick to praise, slow to criticize. But when we do have to have a hard conversation, we're going to do it individually and constructively. And I think as we adopt that posture, we'll find that greater comfort is spreading through the body. That the baton is going from row to row, group to group, house to house, because we're sharing good news of God's work among his church. I'm intrigued by this verse. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.18. And watch this. It says, encourage or comfort one another with these words. And, and what was the situation Paul was addressing? He was addressing a situation in which the church was seeing its members die. I mean, literal physical death. And they were wondering, will I see these people again? Is this the end? Like we bury their body and then we never see them? 
And Paul wrote really good news about God's work. He says, no, Christ is coming. Their body will be raised. You'll meet them in the air and you'll be with them forever. He says, so in light of that good news of God's work, comfort each other with these words. Isn't that good? So it's good news in a hard situation. It's the voice of a friend showing how God is working. Fourth observation and final is this. Comfort leads to rejoicing. In this text, notice how Paul said that he was rejoicing by seeing Titus um, comforted and by seeing Titus just by his presence. But notice what he says when Titus brought the news that they were repenting, repenting of their sin, that now they wanted to see Paul. He uses the words, your longing, your mourning, your zeal in verse 7. He says, I rejoiced still more. So I guess he was joyful, and then he just got more joyful, right? I Man, I love this, this, this scale of happiness, this scale of, of, of joy. And it's brought about because of this good news from Titus and because of Titus' own refreshment by the good news. Paul says the same thing about a man named Philemon in this small little book, verse 7. Look at the connection here in this verse. He connects joy and comfort. Look what he says. I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And we hear a lot of talk sometimes about Paul, you know, being a, maybe a hard man and kind of a driver and kind of a tell-it-like-it-is kind of person. But I tell you, one thing I know about Paul from the reading of the Scriptures is he was very secure and what God was doing through him, and very thankful for what God was doing through others. He never felt insecure and had to sabotage or undermine God's work on the people. He didn't try to make some jealous comment or some envious opinion saying, well, if that was, he just saw it. He was always, always grateful for God's work in others. And here he said about Philemon, man, when I see how God's used you, it brings me joy and comfort. And so can you, can you and I be secure enough to be thankful for God's work in other people's lives and not jealous and envious of it? Can we do what Scripture says when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn? And can we just enter into someone else's excitement at times without having to steal it or make it our own? Can we just say, I'm so glad for you. And when they're hurting, can we just be the voice of a friend and sit with them or stand with them and maybe not have a reason or explanation just to say, hey, I'm sorry. That's bringing comfort. It leads to rejoicing. You know, I've discovered this just informally and experientially. That in moments when someone's seeing God's work in their life and they're rejoicing, and, and then if I don't want to board that train with them, what I find is that if I try to undermine it or sabotage it, it, it seems to keep me in, in the pits of despondency longer. Because what it does is it narrows the walls even more. It hems you in. It, it tightens your circle. You become even more myopic. And being grateful for God's work in others actually is one of the ways God will get you out of your own pit. He'll lift you out of your despondency. Try it. Just rejoice with those who rejoice. And you'll find that there is comfort in that. So, four things we know about comfort. That I think, four sentences that will really kind of sum up this narrative section of 2 Corinthians. That comfort is from God. It comes through people. It contains good news in a hard situation, and it leads to rejoicing. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't take one more quick lap with you. Because this comfort really points to a greater comfort. 
As good as this comfort is, it's mentioned seven times in this chapter, I think five times just in these verses we looked at. It's, it's delightful, it's beautiful, it's practical. I love looking at it. But this comfort is still, watch this, it's momentary and situational. Let's just admit that. That's not, that's not wrong. It's, it's, it's derived in a single moment at a given situation. There's a greater comfort that's more ultimate than that. And it's not momentary. It's not situational. It's eternal. It's the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which meets the humiliation that you've experienced from sin. Remember, this comfort that Paul describes here, though it's momentary and situational, it was used by God to lift him up in a downcast situation. That word there means humiliated. He was despondent and low. And God used news from a friend to lift him up. But it's still momentary and situational. Watch this. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, it comes in when we've been humiliated by sin. We, we, we don't know which way's up. How in the world can I be rescued? Is forgiveness available? And the good news of Christ comes in and says, yes, you can be saved. In fact, notice something interesting. Everything we say about momentary situational comfort here in this text can be said about the gospel. Watch this. The gospel is from God. The gospel comes through people. The gospel contains good news and a hard situation, and the gospel leads to rejoicing, right? So you're going to see this in our benediction verse. There is momentary, situational, legitimate comfort, and we embrace that. It's a baton. We pass to people in the church. We should live that way. But there's an eternal, ultimate comfort as well. And I extend to you not only the baton of momentary, situational comfort that we should quickly pass, receive, and relay, but I extend to you the beautiful, eternal, ultimate comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this, that when we were still in our sins, when we were weak, when we were without hope, Jesus Christ died for us. I don't know all of your spiritual conditions, but if anyone here has been resting and trusting anything else to make them right with God, to give them comfort, maybe you've been attending church since the regathering days have started, thinking, you know, I should turn over a new leaf. I should just kind of start again, and that'll probably impress God. That'll earn me some points. I, let me just share with you honestly, it won't. No human being has any way to earn points with God because we are fundamentally flawed by sin. We've been humiliated by our depravity. But God stepped in on your behalf and he sent Jesus to live, die, and be resurrected. And the only way we gain any kind of reconciliation with God is by believing in Christ. So wherever you are spiritually, if you've never been saved, would you leave behind trusting anything and trust only in Jesus. Would you receive the baton of the good news of the gospel this morning? And when you say, God, I believe you save people only through Jesus. Would you save me this morning, God? And I have great news for you. God will do precisely that. He'll be faithful to save you and give you eternal, ultimate comfort. No wonder even the Old Testament prophets would preach this way. Look at Isaiah 40, in fact. These beautiful words from a prophet centuries ago, but using these very same words, 
but they're referencing the coming of Christ. In fact, would you stand with me and let's read these final two verses as a closing to our message this morning. Here's what Isaiah would say in regards to this eternal, ultimate comfort. Read together, church. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Hallelujah, church. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.